Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to this edition of Between the Lines, the podcast that deciphers the handwriting, unfolds faded pages and dips into the details of diaries, logbooks and letters written during this same week, there or thereabouts, in 1943, some 80 years ago. Let's start with a quick recap of the situation. For this week's episode, we're heading back to the first week of May 1943. Things were intense last month, particularly in Tunisia. Back in Europe, Bomber Command has begun a series of raids on Dortmund in the Ruhr, dropping nearly 1,500 tonnes of bombs on the city. In the Mediterranean, US heavy bombers also attack Reggio di Calabria, in the toe of Italy, with liberators pasting the town with 125 tonnes of high explosives. The Red Army is advancing towards Novorossiysk, and American forces have occupied the Russell Group of Islands, which lay to the northwest of Guadalcanal. So let's catch up with Major General Oscar W. Griswold first, out in the Far East. The Japanese are still holding Bougainville in the Western Solomons, and in Griswold's entries in his diary, even though he's ably supported by Doyle Spurlock, his Chief of Staff, things aren't necessarily going to plan. 1st May 1943 Sunday. Wrote letter home. One of our ships torpedoed by enemy. 2nd May, 1943. Monday. Red letter day. First letter from home arrived today. Airmail. Postmarked April 26th in San Francisco. Written April 18th. 3rd May, 1943. Tuesday. Routine. Getting organized visiting activities, asserting control of things gradually. In view of diversified elements here, Army, Navy, Marine Corps, this must be done carefully. We'll continue 4th and 5th May. 6th May, 1943. Friday. Routine. Very, very rainy today. 7th May, 1943. Saturday. Almost a cloud burst after raining heavily during the night. All bridges reported out. The command faces a serious flood situation. Corps headquarters almost flooded out. A torrent is raging through the middle of the camp. Due to the very precipitous hills, water is collected very quickly. The British commissioner, Major Petty, states this is the worst flood condition in Guadalcanal in the 22 years he's been here. This situation calls for clear thinking and organization, which I've been doing all day. Duke is a jewel. He's going like a million dollars. Great help and comfort to me. Guadalcanal. It's a hostile environment, all right. Even now, the Japanese have been ousted. Hot, humid, wet jungle terrain that's a perfect breeding ground for malaria-carrying mosquitoes and monsoon conditions with almost no notice at all. 
By way of complete contrast, there probably couldn't be anything more different than the weather conditions in the English countryside. We join Veer Hodgson, our young teacher, usually based in Notting Hill Gate in London, as she takes a quick break from life in the city. Her destination is the sunny uplands of Warwickshire for the weekend. Something perfectly normal, no matter which decade you're living in. In fact, reading Veer's diary entry this week, it's hard to believe there's a war on at all. Until, that is, we pick up small hints like blackouts at the railway stations and blocked footpaths, just in case of an invasion. Sunday, 2nd of May. Been home for Easter. Many people travelling. Found a seat and others piled in behind me. A foreign male voice asked if there was room for a mother and baby. There was. Opposite to me. This little family made the interest of the journey. The baby definitely did not think the journey necessary and announced her opinion. Fortunately, the man beside me had a way with him. He made funny noises which intrigued the baby, who subsided and decided to make the best of the situation. The young father was a Dane or a Czech. The mother, English. He joined them after putting the pram on the train. But alas, the most important item had been left behind on the kitchen table by the father. He looked most upset, as did the baby. But the young mother let him off lightly and proceeded to make a liquid which she stirred with a villainous-looking knife out of father's pocket. Quite a drama. We all got out at Leamington. In the corridor, a girl of about fifteen asked me to let her know when we were at Vista. Poor child! Directed her to the stationmaster for the next train back. Stations are all pitch black. All well at home. Beryl had made an excellent meal. Breakfast in bed. So different from last year when mother was ill and I had to set to work on spring cleaning. Lovely run out to Biddeford to meet Bernard Slay. Old Bridge and Red Roof Village like a painting of Delft. No meal. Inns too full of fishermen. However, finally we found cold ham, tea, bread, margarine and rhubarb tart. Ages since we have tasted cold ham. Then out to Cleve Prior along Buckle Street, a Roman road. Met Dr H. Mill dismantled. The dam over the Avon burst in 1938, and they have not mended it, so we could not ford across to Salford Prior. Pathway all blocked with fallen trees and barbed wire in case of invasion. Thrilled to find dozens of bees coming in and out of a tree, legs laden with pollen. One would have to cut the tree to get the honey. Kath and I were offered synthetic grapefruit drink and instructed to drink from the bottle, as the men had no glasses nor any cloth with which to wipe them. Out in Tunisia, RSM Jack Ward is also making notes, scribbling his observations in a small blue pocketbook. The official war diary of the 56th Heavy Regiment tells us this is a quiet week, but we now know that German troops were in fact close by, even though the campaign is now in its final days. The enemy troops had taken advantage of the British failure to mine the gab-gab-gab. It's not going all our way. The 56th isn't taking it easy, though. The beginning of the week may start slowly, but in five hours straight on the 6th of May, the lads put a phenomenal amount of explosives through their guns, playing their part in that stunning British victory, Operation Strike, the Battle of Medjaz al-Bab. 
15 battery, 409 rounds. 17 battery, 350 rounds. 18 battery, 214 rounds. I'll let Jack pick up the story. May 2nd. This is 4am Sunday morning. On duty and things are quiet outside. We are about six miles north of Medjez and have been here two days. We are holding up, but Jerry's putting up a good fight. May 7th. A lot to catch up with. Where do I start? Move forward again since the last recording. I've heard that our armoured division are now in Tunis. On the morning of the 6th, commencing at 3am, our guns put down the largest concentration of fire ever known in a two-mile front. A grand show and proper headache for Jerry. <laughs> We're now attached to the 4th Indian Division. I've been up to the front battlefield this afternoon and oh, what a sight. Jerry knocked out by the school. Ambulance is taking away the wounded and bringing in the dead. But a lot of Jerry's to account for yet. Stirring stuff and a rare battle that went entirely to plan. Understanding the view of someone who was there, albeit in shorthand sometimes, and then comparing those notes with the official entries in the war diary, it's just a revelation. Really brings home the actuality of war. However, we also start to think about what was happening higher up the chain of command, away from the front, where people were having to make rapid and important decisions, sometimes with some pretty sketchy information. Communications have improved the last few months. We know that now. Still, not everything is crystal clear. Chester B. Hansen, Omar Bradley's aide-de-camp, gives us an insight to this chaos. Listen to the way he's writing about action reports here, about intelligence, estimates and suspicions of what's happening. The objectives have been definite for a long time, but nothing certain about the current situation. A cloudy May day early in the morning. Shortly before noon, the sun came up and burned most of the mist away. Is this the beginning of the end? First visible signs today that the enemy may be crumbling. Tonight, Colonel Dixon visited the general's tent, obviously concerned about the significance of his day's observations after examination of available intelligence information. Corfranc reports capture of a large number of prisoners in northern sector, and Tabers of Corps are pushing on to Tescraya with interdictory fire from elements of the 9th Division on road to Bazert. Down in the vicinity of Hill 609, combat teams from the 34th and 1st Divisions were pitted against last-ditch elements of the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Barenthans. Fighting has been fierce, and after unconventional usage of a company of tanks that enveloped Hill from the northwest, the forward slopes were taken, and mopping up action instituted on the remainder of the hill. Hand-to-hand fighting resulted. Tonight, we had reports that counterattack is being organized south of Kefchikak. Artillery has submitted the report, so it is probable that they are ready to smash the attack. The general smiles and says, Let them come. We want to kill Germans. Both 34th and 1st Divisions today report that several groups of Germans, evidently comprising 20 or 30 men each, came from behind the Jebels near Kefchikak, attempting to surrender under a white flag. Artillery fired on them, and the group dispersed and disappeared. Artillery may have been ours. Mistrusting the advance may have been ours. Firing on another target may have been theirs, attempting to forestall surrender of their troops. Suspicion is growing stronger tonight. Important German leaders are evacuating to Germany and leaving troops in Africa to forage for themselves under junior officers, functioning with air sats replacements that do not measure up to the splendid caliber of units like the Barenthan 
and the 47th Battalion of the 22nd Airborne. Quite definitely determined now that Rommel has left. Von Arnheim is reportedly gone. Witzig returned to Berlin. A pilot shot down behind our lines reports that all available transports based on ships returning to the continent have been engaged for senior officers. Is this the beginning of the end? Colonel Dixon thinks so, though he hastens to qualify his prediction with an appeal for caution. Suggests that if another combat team were available, breakthrough might be affected on the northern flank with such impetus that it would carry us through to Bizert. General likes the idea of a breakthrough, but, though he twinkles at the suggestion, he also appears reluctant to pull anything from his main effort and divert to the northern push. Believe too risky. No core support now available, and tank destroyer troops are being used to plug gaps in our holding lines while infantry continues to attack. General's estimate of the situation is amazingly clear and quickly given. He sits on the same metal seat on front of the map in his tent, where blue and red crayon markings on the acetate coverings reveal the forward positions of our attacking elements and the strong points of enemy defensive positions. Colonel Keane is there, and the general often chuckles as he speaks. Seven days since the jump-off now, and still he shows no sign of fatigue. Indeed, he is unusually robust and customarily jolly, smoothing the sparse gray hair on his head and thinking aloud as he speaks to Bill and Dixon. If we push through now with evidence of this debark on the northern flank, it is entirely possible, he admits to Colonel Dixon, that we may drive on all the way to Bizert. On the other hand, we may run into the same hornet's nest that have plagued us through all these hills and slowed our advance everywhere on the Tunisian front. An unsuccessful attempt to exploit the situation might result in the shifting of additional German strength to our front, facilitating the breakthrough of the First Army, but correspondingly stalemating our effort. This campaign is too important to the prestige of the American Army to take such risks, he decides, adding quite rightly that if a rout is in effect, the crumbling will continue for several days. They won't fall apart like a house of cards, he says, and this is altogether probable. If we can coordinate our attack with the British to our south, neither will have suffered undue hardship upon the other. The crumbling, if it is started, will continue anyhow, and we shall lose nothing by waiting, he concludes. General wishes aloud that he had another division to throw in on the front and exploit the situation as it now stands. Italian propaganda being directed to Italian units in Corps Franc, urging them to surrender. There is no hope. Machines are apparently unusually successful. Propaganda dropped from airplanes and fired with artillery. Rommel has left you. Your higher officers have gone home. And you are left here to fight a great enemy with many more supplies than you will ever know. Way to safety is surrender. Come over to our lines. We need to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from Between the Lines in just a moment. Now then, let's get back to Charlie Williams, who's volunteered to join the recently formed 617 Squadron at RAF Scampton. Charlie was single when he left Australia to join the war effort in Britain, but he's not long met Gwen Parfit, a young woman who was working as a secretary in Nottingham. That's some 40 miles away from the base in Lincolnshire. So, as you can imagine, Charlie has started writing to her almost every day. He's young, well, in his early 30s. He's busy, but he's also head over heels in love. When he's not out training for a special low-level operation with his crew, 
including pilot and fellow Australian Flight Lieutenant Norman Barlow, Charlie is putting pen to paper and staying in touch with his darling Bobby, as he calls her, keeping her up to date with some very distinguished visitors who happen to be calling in at RAF Scampton. May 4th, my darling Bobby. Here I am at camp once again, ready to start work. Had quite a good trip back, arriving in good time for lunch. I hope you're okay and didn't get into any trouble with your boss. I think you can handle him. I was sorry you had to rush away as soon as you did. I hope to see you again. I enjoyed my short stay very much, darling, and feel quite lonely when I'm away from you. I will miss you an awful lot. May 5th, my darling Bobby. Thank you so much, darling, for your long letter. That was the longest, nicest letter you've ever written to me. We had a very distinguished visitor here today, Lord Trenchard. He has four long rows of ribbons on his chest and he's been out in the Middle East for some time. He spoke to us for about 15 minutes and was very interesting. Gave us the usual pat on the back. Darling, I do feel thrilled and excited and I'm looking forward to the day. When the day comes, I shall most likely feel somewhat nervous, but I will have to overcome that. I miss you so much. I hope my next leave is not far away. May 6th. My darling Bobby. I was rather disappointed in not receiving a letter from you, but I know how busy you are at times, so I don't blame you. You did write me a lot last time. I don't know when I'll be able to come in and see you, darling. We're very busy just now. I wish I could see you tonight and hold you in my arms and make love to you. But as I'm so far away, I can only think of you and look forward to the next time I'll see you. May 7th. My darling Bobby, I had lunch today at another airdrome somewhere on the southeast coast of England and did not get back here until 5pm. However, I'll try and ring you tomorrow and only hope I can get through. Darling, I could not get here tonight, even if you could be there to meet me. I thought at one time I might be able to make it, but as things turned out it was impossible. Everyone seems very anxious about us. I really think a lot of people will get a kick out of life when we actually do go off the deep end, and I know a lot of people will get a big surprise. I've been working every night since I came back from leave. Had no time to go to Lincoln, blondes or no blondes. And even if you had been in Lincoln, my sweet one, I wouldn't have had time to come and see you. Well, my darling, no more news for now, so I must sign off. If you don't receive this letter, please do write and let me know. Cheerio, darling. All my love and kisses. Your loving Charles. By contrast, millions of coded messages were being transmitted in complex ciphers day and night up and down the lines in every branch of the services. Sapper Harry Wilson is getting to know one of these coding machines. Well, the Type X, in many ways, a British version of a commercial Enigma machine. Three rows of wheels, a space bar, a rotor cage behind the keyboard with room for five cipher wheels. Two black cylinders working as printers, printing to a paper strip. It's complicated. Harry Wilson has settled in as a newly graduated cipher clerk, and now he's getting to grips with these machines. It's not exciting, not yet, but you've got to admit, it's better than running a payroll. Saturday first. Every day it gets warmer. 
The swallows are as thick as flies, especially in Zala. An unfortunate succession of errors in the office recently culminated in the true Typex indicator being transmitted over the radio in a message to Mideast, Cairo, and the entire cipher staff were called in to Captain Dragaskis. He was very nice about the whole thing. At certain times, everything seemed to go wrong, and there's no accounting for it. In periods like these, we should exercise greater care than the usual and double-check our work. We had committed the unpardonable crime, used a true Typex indicator instead of the disguised one, the very worst thing that could happen. Luckily, Mideast hadn't noticed us. If they had, the fat would have been properly in the fire. Dragaskis mentioned no names, included everyone in the dressing down. Monday 3rd. Gloriously warm. Ciphering. Very happy at the moment. Finally this week, yes, we're dipping back into the aircrafts crossing the Atlantic between the Nairns. David Blythe Nairn, a young trainee navigator in the RAF in Canada, and his parents living in Edinburgh. Students at the Port Albert School went to over 125 hours of lectures and all. Although the wages weren't bad as a student, 11 shillings a day, and there are worse places to spend time than Lake Huron. The food was okay, and rumour had it, you could get a real drink if you took a membership out at the local club. Huron County was a dry county at the time. Marblive may not have been privy to that niche bit of information, but she was being kept up to speed with David's exploits in Canada and beyond. And she was sharing them too. Here she is, jotting down her thoughts on the 1st of May. 1st of May. Dear David. Remember me telling you in my last aircraft that Ian's dad had asked Joan to leave the letter relating your experiences in Detroit? Well... It has appeared in tonight's news. Personal items omitted, of course. I'm sending you a copy of this as a cutting in a letter. I thought I wouldn't tell you until it actually appeared. I have just met Mrs Linton and she is pleased to hear you are getting on so well. Her son, Alec, the one who was in the Boy Scouts, has been discharged from the army on account of his stomach. She mentioned that Mr Lloyd was in hospital and I expect it will be his knee again. I am looking forward to your next aircraft and hearing how you enjoyed your visit to Aunt Jean, and Uncle Sam was asking Dad today if you had managed to go. Hope Frank and you are doing well in your studies, and expect you'll be a lot out of doors now the weather is getting warmer. Everything okay here. Love, Ma. Normal life goes on. It's an interesting point, this constant change in tempo of war and appreciation of war, with men taking leave and cycling in and out of the lines, no matter which service they're in. Of course, once they're into the action, an action, any action, the ability to take leave becomes much harder. Ironic, really, as that's when recovery might be needed most. But the pressure really is on to increase the number of men available to Bomber Command, and the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan is a good solution. We'll finish this week with David's update back to his mother. A little something to look forward to for his younger sister, Joan. And some news about a couple of other sisters too, who do sound familiar. 5th May. Dear Ma, Frank, Johnny Wilding, alias Hugh, and I shuffled off to Buffalo over the weekend, and from there nipped smartly out to Niagara Falls on the Sunday morning. Johnny has an aunt and uncle in Buffalo, and they put us up for the weekend. They gave us a swell time, lucky blighters we are. The falls were very impressive. Gallons and gallons of dough. That's water. 
that's falling permanently from quite a height, shooting up a terrific spray. We went down near the foot of them to take a photograph and got drenched in the attempt. I'm told that the perpetual movement of the water is wearing the land away so that the falls are gradually moving back, and I don't wonder. So ends another chapter in Travels in the New World by L.A.C. Blythe, what have you. Oh, it hasn't ended just yet. I forgot, for some unknown reason, another very important event. We saw, in person, the Andrews sisters at a stage show in the place where one shuffles off to. That's Buffalo Ma. They were really great. Bags of personality, and you know as well as I do, they can certainly sing. There was also this super duper band there, Mitchell Ayles. There isn't much to tell you just now, Ma. Except that the course is going okay. I've received your second page of your air graph of the 6th of April, by the way. I'm going to try and bring a pair of ice skates home for Joan if I can get a pair now. The only trouble is I'm not sure what size of shoes she takes. It will probably be three or four. It may be too late for you to let me know, but try and tell me so I can make it possible. Tell her not to build up her hopes too much because the skating season has finished now, but I should manage to get a pair. Wish I'd mentioned this before, but I keep on forgetting. Hope everything is okay at home. Love to all. David. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We do hope you found a little insight and were briefly entertained as we were reading. Between the Lines. Between the Lines is a We Have Ways production. Julia Mar Blythe is read by Ruth Sillers. David Blythe is read by Matthew Malthouse. Oscar Griswold is read by Michael Lyons. Chester Hansen is read by Lance Fuller. Via Hodgson is read by Rachel Holland. Heinz Knocker is read by Lucas Veschler. Bertie Packer is read by Paul Waggett. Jack Ward is read by Adam Jarrell. Harry Wilson is read by Joel Emery. Narration is by James Holland and Al Murray. Editing by John Gill and Joey McCarthy. Written and produced by Merrin Walters. The executive producer is Tony Pastor. <laughs>